Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. This week, we start off by finishing the discussion between Nicole Siegel and Jackie Wang. You can hear more of their conversation on carceral capitalism in last week's episode. My analysis is looking at both the debt economy as basically developing instruments that are carceral. So even when Uh we think about debt itself and the temporality of debt, the way that in which the creditor owns the debtor's future Mm, could be temporality, these modes of time. Right. That could be thought of as carceral in itself. And even Mm -hmm. thinking on the municipal level, when residents are ensnared in debt through the criminal justice system, that is also a carceral technique, Mm -hmm. but also financialization as in itself basically creates a situation where carceral techniques can be developed to try to resolve some of these problems created by the financial sector. I know this is complicated, but I think it's so important to understanding how prisons make profit. Because mm -hmm. a lot of time when people think about how prisons make profit, they assume it's just through private prisons. Or if they're thinking a little bit more expansively, through the private corporations that are involved in supplying prisons with food or telephone services or clean laundry mm-hmm. or the buildings themselves, the construction industry. you know. But those are all really concrete kinds of services. And I think looking at financialization, at financial instruments mm-hmm. that prisons use to make profit is so important to understanding why prison is actually effective economically, mm-hmm. why it's an economic... Mm-hmm. solution that people are embracing when if you just look at the pure sort of surface economics of it it looks like prison is a f- phenomenal waste of money mm-hmm. and waste of people and human lives well if you even think about fiscal problems coming to a head uh-huh. and this is happening in um, all across Michigan yeah. and the well Midwest. Detroit is the premier yeah. example but right, it's far exactly. from the only city suffering so a lot of times um, you know, municipalities will engage in high-risk borrowing with public money, mm-hmm. and they're, they have legal obligations to their creditors. Yes. And so this creates a situation where once there's this fiscal crisis that government bodies are experiencing, the question becomes, where are we going to get this money? If it's not politically viable to raise property taxes or if property tax revenue has declined like it mm-hmm. did in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Right, the global financial crisis. Right, exactly. Then the, the question becomes like, okay, what can we do to get this money to fulfill our obligations to the creditors, yeah. which is the financial sectors, it's mm-hmm. the bankers on Wall Street. This sort of brings us full circle to what we were talking about at the beginning of the interview of why abolition, police and prison abolition, is on so many people's minds right now because the state solutions seem to be bankrupt. How can we pretend that there's room to 
appeal to the state when they're invested in the like literally invested in maintaining the system and you know a offender funded criminal justice Oof. is yeah. becoming more and more popular there are police departments that want to charge for arrest regardless yeah. of conviction which is right. just like you know having also prisoners and um, people who have been convicted of crimes pay more and more fees pay mm -hmm. for more and more of of the costs of the criminal justice system this is expanding right. so really is, this yeah. is also one reason why i was you know trying to make this intervention and also you know thinking about the ferguson example how the financial manager was like crap you know we're not raising enough revenue um, and as i found that's all linked to dynamics in the global economy mm -hmm let's use the police to do that. Fiscal crises are, are also something that seems like it's on the horizon, which mm -hmm. it does in many places. Um, and the United States is incredibly geographically uneven in, in terms of economic development. Mm -hmm. um, but in many places, it is on the horizon, these municipal fiscal crises. So right. I also yeah. wanted to have this book add to the conversation about um, fee and fine farming through the police because mm -hmm. I am just genuinely worried that, that, that this will keep this expanding. Will, yes, exactly. And it gives you such a different sense of what the solution to police brutality and excessive use of force is. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if police are simply being linked to the process of value extraction, mm -hmm. then it doesn't matter how many sensitivity courses or how many more black and brown police uh -huh, or right. how yeah. much, you know, we can increase police accountability, police are going to be doing the work of carceral capitalism. Mm -hmm. There's two political scientists, I can't remember their names, but they basically crunched a bunch of census data and found that majority black cities experience more of the fee and fine farming. It was slightly mitigated by black political representation, uh -huh. but that just you know shows that even outside of Ferguson, across the United States, because they mm. were looking um, at like over a thousand cities, I think, mm -hmm. um, they found if the city's majority black, they're going to be more likely to rely on these forms of revenue extraction. Wow. And it's not only that this um, money is being transferred to the financial sector, but also the police departments, their livelihoods are directly bound up with being able to extract right. from residents. So if they This can... is such a great example of what you mean by racial capitalism, too, in, in amongst the carceral capitalism. Thinking about... You know, when you're thinking about prisons and police and the so-called criminal justice system, mm -hmm. just the devastation caused by mass incarceration and racial capitalism is just incalculable. And now, we share a series of compelling letters and updates from Operation Push, which is still ongoing in some parts of the Florida prison system, and many prisoners across the state are sharing their experiences of retaliation by prison officials for participating in the strike. 
Right up front, as far as Operation Push is going, we're dealing with some serious fallout. We've got a lot of people in consignment. They seem to be doing it in rounds, and they've really ramped up their retaliations again these past two weeks. Every single day they pick up one of our main correspondents and put them in confinement under investigation. As of right now, there's about 14 of our more consistent closer contacts that are sitting in confinement under investigation with no reason being given as to why they're under investigation. I myself am also under investigation. I'm not allowed to visit, send money to prisoners, and I'm, I won't, they're not telling me why I'm under investigation either. So that's kind of what it's looking like down here at the moment. I'd like to read a couple letters that kind of outline the setup that Florida Department of Corrections uses to get people from obedient slave when they become radical. There's a, a plan set forth that FDOC enacts, and it starts with a disciplinary report, it starts with physical abuse, and it ends up with people on closed management. So the couple of letters that I've chosen for tonight are exactly that. These are people that would have been getting out of prison in a couple of years, and now they're facing multiple charges and decades ahead of them, um, not to mention have been physically ab abused um, along the way. So this letter is from a prisoner who um, his problem started at Suwannee Correctional, but he is now on the closed management unit at Florida State Prison. He would have gotten out of prison in 2022, and four years from now, he's a 22-year-old. He's but I will go ahead and read you his letter, and then we can talk more about you know what is going to happen to him as a result. So it starts, um, he says, I witnessed officers and sergeants kicking, punching, and hitting an inmate over the head with a walkie-talkie. I and other inmates were attending recreation on O-Dorm Rec Yard. After the officers and sergeants finished doing what they were to that inmate at the center tower, they came over our way and told us to go into the dorm. I did comply, and as I was walking to O-Dorm, I looked back, and Officer Sistrunk ordered me to step out of line, and I complied. He told me to keep walking towards the pavilion, and I complied. Then he instructed me to place my hands behind my back. As soon as he said that, either one of the officers or sergeants that was behind me sprayed me in the back of the head with chemical agents, kicked out my left cap, grabbed my jacket, spinning me around, and they all tackled me. They punched me in the face several times, calling me Nick and stated that they were going to kill me and that they or have me killed. I have a six-year-old daughter who will be seven years old on December 9th, and I have no one but her. I spoke with the Inspector General of Swanee Correctional to give my statement on a recorder. Swanee lied and said that I stabbed Sergeant Lawrence in his left forearm. I never had any knives or any weapons as such. Once they took me into P dormitory and placed me in the shower for decontamination, I chose not to shower, and so they gassed me with two full tanks of chemical agents. Lieutenant Crawford told him to hurry up and beat my black ass before the camera gets here while I was outside. Oh, I forgot to mention earlier that they rubbed my face in the dirt, and Sergeant DeMauro spit in my face and said, How is that, n***? After they gassed me in the shower, I submitted and showered. Lieutenant Rigel took my clothes to his office. Now, why would he do that? The answer is to set me up with two knives.
I'm going to skip to the next letter, and then we can talk a little bit about what's going on with that. I have received a closed management approval paper, and the report that is in it is totally different than the disciplinary report that Sergeant Lorenz, who said I attacked him, wrote. In the disciplinary report, Sergeant Lorenz wrote that I struck him in the mouth with a clenched fist, but the closed management report says I struck him in the facial area with an unknown object. Okay, and I'm, I'm mentioning that because since then, they've changed the report again, and now they're saying that he stabbed the officer with a knife. When this case first popped up and he was beaten and sent to closed management, I reached out to the ACLU, and they, they, they reached out to him and were pursuing his case because they're investigating Suwanee Correctional, where it happened, where the first attack happened. As soon as the ACLU reached out to him, they changed the report, and they are now charging him with criminal charges of attack on an officer, and so the ACLU won't touch it because they'll only do civil cases. He lost his representation the minute they hit him with criminal charges, and they had to change the report in order to justify criminal charges. Now you've got a 22-year-old kid who would have been out of prison in three to four years facing another couple decades if they can make this stick, and he has no representation. And so that is the kind of fallout that we're looking at. Um, I have another one that's quite lengthy, but it kind of outlines how it is that officers are able to get away with these things when there's allegedly cameras all over prisons. On February 9th, 2018, this is another Operation Push participant, I was viciously physically assaulted at the mercy of Tomoka Correctional Institution Sergeant S. Richards at Florida Tomoka CI work camp. Sergeant Richards had placed me in handcuffs, punched me in the stomach, and tried to knee me in the groin. After the assault, I had immediately reported what happened to Lieutenant Wilkins. Once I completely explained the situation concerning the assault by his sergeant, Lieutenant Wilkins had threatened to have me beaten again and placed in closed management housing if I reported the assault to anybody else. And then he cites a grievance where he clearly tried to report it. On March 1, 2018, I was then transferred from Tomoka to Central Florida Reception Center, where upon arrival, classification placed me in administrative confinement. On March 2nd, around 10 a.m., Captain J.D. Rumo approached my confinement cell and stated, it's a short ride from here to Tomoka, meaning that he could send me back to where I was beaten any time. As soon as Captain J. Rumo finished, I immediately remembered the threats made by the Tomoka CI staff. And so um, in order to get out of the situation and the retaliation I was facing, I declared a mental health emergency. I was told by Captain J. Rumo to strip down to my boxer and underwear, and I complied. Officer St. Cruz escorted me from my cell to the shower cell. Officer St. Cruz took me out of the shower, then proceeded to put me in leg restraints. I was already wearing handcuffs. Then he escorted me to the medical building, which I found out later that the only way to reach Y dormitory is to go through medical's waiting room area, which is a wide, enclosed walk path where there are no security cameras nor audio recording. But instead of him taking me to Y dormitory, he took me inside the mental health office to see Dr. Whitaker. When we left Dr. Whitaker's office, Officer St. Cruz had immediately gotten a security radio and said that I was resisting, which I was not. 
when we got into medical waiting room area where there are no cameras, Officer St. Cruz placed his foot down on the chain of my leg restraints that I was wearing, lifted my arms up, which my hands were cuffed behind my back, forcing me to lean my head forwards towards the wall. Then Officer St. Cruz body slammed me to the ground. I landed flat on my stomach. I was surrounded by security holding me down. I looked up and saw Captain J. Rumo. He kicked me twice in the face on the right side. I was then taken to Y dorm where a male nurse wearing glasses was told by the captain to just make a statement for me saying I refuse medical treatment. Yet the whole while this was happening and being recorded, I was screaming loudly that I'd been kicked in my face and jumped on. I was escorted back to H dorm where I learned that Captain Rumo put me on strip property restriction, which is a strip cell where they take you have only boxers and socks and no belongings. They say it's for your own safety, but this is done because CFRC does not want inmates to be able to grieve the excessive and malicious and sadistic use of force by security staff. Not to mention I was never given an opportunity to write a statement in my defense concerning the use of force. On March 2nd, around 1 to 3 p.m., I was inside my cell suffering from serious pain, and Officer Sandlin was doing a security check, so I asked him to come by my cell. He was standing directly in front of my cell. I declared a medical emergency. He ordered me to submit to handcuffs, and I complied. Then he moved away from my cell and got on his radio. A few minutes later, Captain Rumo came to my cell screaming at me to let his officer take off the handcuffs I was wearing. I didn't understand what was going on, and I stated so to Captain Rumo that that I had called a medical emergency. Then Officer Sandlin had put me in handcuffs. In response, I was pepper sprayed. I was on strip cell status, handcuffed behind my back, and wearing only boxers, and I was pepper sprayed. Not once did Captain Rumo ask what my medical emergency was, and since I, or since I was wearing handcuffs to just have me brought out of my cell. Instead, he used excessive and malicious and sadistic use of pepper spray on me, so I couldn't go to medical and file a report against him and his staff for inmate abuse. After I was pepper sprayed, I was told to back out of the cell. The chemical spray had blinded me. I was hardly breathing, and as I was backing out, one of the officers tripped me causing me to fall on my back on top of the handcuffs I was wearing. Once again, I was escorted to Y-Dorm, but this time I'm in a wheelchair because I cannot walk at this point. Inside Y-Dorm, I took a chemical shower and saw a nurse who refused to list or examine any of my injuries. I was taken back to H-Dorm, put on strip cell property restriction, and still not given an opportunity to write a a statement. He's now sitting in closed management as a result of this. There's no paper trail. There's another letter where he kind of expounds on the officer who's in charge of the grievances and how he throws them all away. A tiny tidbit of good news comes out of Operation Push participants at Everglades Correctional informing us that the price of soups dropped five cents across the state which was one of the main complaints of Operation Push is the price gouging that goes on in the commissary. I just learned of this today, but apparently that is their concession. They dropped the price of ramen from $0.70 to $0.65 for a single pack. Um, This coming from a prisoner who is writing from confinement because he is still refusing to work. He is happy about the meager drop in price, and they are working on a boycott to improve the coffee price next.
He says, um, this is due to the recent developments in their boycott sections of our Operation Push. Big frickin' deal. It's just one item, but our next bit is to get our coffee lowered and changed because it has a synthetic chemical sprayed on it, and our coffee has to be kosher because it's a widely used item and must be prepared differently. He also describes the way prisoners in confinement are dealt with at Everglades Correctional. It's a psych camp, although a lot of prisons are riddled with people dealing with mental health issues. Certain camps have a higher uh, number of prisoners dealing with actually documented mental health issues, and Everglades is one of those. And um, they like to use turtle suits. If you're not aware of uh, turtle suits, it's just a huge, big, padded suit they put you in to keep you safe from hurting yourself. You're completely naked underneath, and you have no possessions. So they put prisoners in these suits, and then they flood their cells with water. They fill the whole, according to this letter, they just plugged up the sinks at the end of the unit and let the water fill all the cells, and it's just a psychological torture. Uh, the, The aftermath of it isn't very terrible. You can see the water coming. You can prepare for it, move your belongings, get on your bunk. It's just psychological torture as you sit there looking ridiculous in this massive turtle suit that is going to absorb the water if you get near it. So so these are the kind of retaliation efforts that we're seeing more and more of. And every day, the reports of people being recommended for closed management you know, are increasing. At, at the moment, we only have four prisons in the state that are that qualify as closed management camps or that have, I should say, closed management um, dorms within the camps. And I wouldn't be surprised if they have to start declaring more prisons in our state. We have, you know, 145 declaring more of them closed management camps because that seems to be their choice of response to Operation PUSH. I'm not sure if you're aware of the recent visitation changes that Florida's trying to make by reducing prisoners' visit contact visits with family by 50% is something that um, happened recently, uh, about a month after PUSH kicked off. Florida Department of Corrections sent out a memo to everybody letting prisoners and their family knowing that their visitation would be cut in half and kiosks would be put into all of the dorms so that video visitation could be facilitated. Um, This is a huge problem for us, for prisoners, for family, for friends, for concerned citizens. The video visits are about three bucks for 15 minutes, and it comes with a host of issues, uh, logistically speaking, not to mention the cutting people off from their community and their loved ones and how that will affect recidivism and rehabilitation and mental health. Everything in this building is over 60 years old and deteriorating. Rats infested, insects, roaches, spiders, the walls, doors, windows, lockers are all rusted and mildewed, especially the food flaps where they stick the trays down and we pull them into the cells. They're covered with rust and mildew. There is no insulation in the walls of the prison at all. The plumbing is disgusting. The pipes are filled with mud and rust and sewage on the base of the floors of the buildings. It is unbelievable. And then they have B, C, 
D and E wings all rigged to where the inmate cannot flush his own toilet. I have never experienced such a traumatic condition of confinement in 18 years. The flush button is on a wall outside the cell and is supposed to be flushed every 30 minutes. You have to put up a sign and wait on someone to come and hope that they're in a good enough mood to flush it. The toilets are not even two feet from the bed, and I have almost vomited sitting in a cell with my own feces and urine fumigating for hours before security was too busy to flush the toilet or the wing was too loud, so the officers used the flush as a tool of discipline in a malicious and sadistic manner. And then the toilets themselves have developed cankered layers of feces and urine stains inside the bowl that give off constant biohazardous waste. I've never seen anything like this in my life, and we are on closed management status in this building. So we sit in these torture cells 24 hours a day. After I began to file grievances, because this violates every constitutional right and rule 33.601.800 of the Florida statutes, I imagine, water supply to closed management units they did what they always do at this institution, and they threw away my grievances. But in an attempt to silence me, they moved me to a wing on the opposite side of the prison that has a flush button inside the cell. The person responsible for inspecting the cleanliness and safety of every prison in the state of Florida is the inspector general. And how to get his ass up here is to complain that he is falsifying his reports about the condition of prisons. Under a Florida statute, he would have to be found guilty of a third-degree felony. And there's no way he's reporting these conditions in this prison. By the way, this is also the prison where Kevin Rashid Johnson has been held for the past almost year, although he was just recently moved to the closed management unit at Santa Rosa. So the grievances were never returned. Uh, the grievance coordinator, Mr. Thompson, is notorious for throwing away every grievance of any serious nature, completely silencing the cries of inmates at Florida State Prison, and nothing has been done about this. On March 21st, 2018, when the inmate in cell 1320 went to the shower and while being escorted back to his cell, saw that his cell had been destroyed, personal property, pictures thrown all over the cell, in the toilet, toothpaste smeared all over the walls, he demanded to see the captain. Instead, he was threatened with property restriction, which is that strip cell abuse we were talking about, and subsequently assaulted with chemical agents. Before the two lieutenants made that decision, cells 1321, and then he lists several other cells, all attempted to speak with them to defend the inmate in 1320. The result, more inmates assaulted with chemical agents. On closed management housing, inmates are being victimized in this fashion on a daily basis, and no one hears their cries for help. He goes on to talk about, you know, some ways that we could, people on the outside could help, such as making phone calls. So, closed management seems to be just a real common theme, and it has been their main tactic in dealing with boycotters and strikers, and people just legitimately writing grievances because they're living in and fills. You know, just for like a little peek into what daily life is like in the Florida Department of Corrections, a prisoner um, described to me what it's like for him to try to go to sleep at night. I now have dreams of what happened to me. I end up punching the wall. 
kneeing and kicking the wall while I sleep, and the impact wakes me up out of my sleep. I have flashbacks of officers beating me, spitting on me, calling me and trying to kill me. I fight for my life and my dreams. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.